I would encourage you to, to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. And we're picking up in our series going through this letter. If you were with us the day after Christmas, uh, we looked at verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is where Paul is rounding out this discussion of the offices of the church. We looked at the office of elder, the office of deacon, uh, the order that God has given for his church. And we saw this remarkable statement back in verses 13 and 14, where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Then our text today, we're moving into verse 16, another th great 316 in the Bible. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess today the mystery of godliness, the mystery that has been made known. But Lord, we cannot comprehend and understand the mystery by our own strength. And so we pray for your supernatural grace to guide us today. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we talked about two weeks ago, in, the, in verse 15, Paul says that the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. And you think of that image, this is the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, and that the church is this pillar holding the truth up, supporting the truth, lifting up the truth for the world to see and to hear, that the church is confessing the truth as part of its witness to the world. It's not a pillar that throws the truth down and tramples it underfoot. It ceases to be the true church, but when it is really the church, when it is holding up the truth as a pillar and a buttress. But then in the, the flow of Paul's thought here, in verse 16, the verse that we're looking at today, he's moving to a discussion of this truth. What is at the top of the pillar? What is the truth that the church is called to, to lift up, to proclaim, to confess? And the first thing that we see here in our text is that we are called to confess, we're called to, to lift up, to proclaim, to hold up the mystery of godliness. Look at verse 16 again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It could be translated, most certainly and incontestably great is the mystery of godliness. You look at that word mystery, uh, the, the Greek word is musterion, where actually we get our, our word English word mystery from the word musterion. And the word in the original language means that which transcends normal understanding, transcendent reality, ultimate reality, secret. But that word is not, it's not identical to the way that we use the word mystery in English. That, that often when we talk about mysteries, we talk about something that is unknown or something that is unknowable in some way. 
Listen to what one Bible dictionary says. It says that mysterion is by no means an exact equivalent of the English word mystery. In contemporary usage, mystery refers to something unexplained, the disappearance of a painting, a particular phenomenon in the sky, the actions of an individual for which no one can account. In each instance, once the riddle is solved, the mystery disappears. And so that's saying that when we talk about mysteries, we tend to only care about the mystery as long as it's a mystery. Once it's solved, we move on to something else. But it says, the Greek term, however, refers to a mystery of divine nature that remains hidden from human beings because their normal powers of comprehension are insufficient. We can't access it by our own strength, or our own wisdom. But then it says, nonetheless, these mysteries are intended for human beings. And when known, they prove profitable to them. So they, they turn out to be mysteries that when made known, when revealed, are useful, are, are beneficial, are, are practical for people. These are useful mysteries. These aren't what you see in documentaries of the, the mystery of the pyramids or the mystery of Area 51 or the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, all the mysteries that you see. But this is a very practical mystery because as we see, it's not just any mystery that it says it is the, the mystery of godliness. Look again at your Bible. Gray, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What does that mean, that it's a, a mystery of godliness? Uh, godliness means awesome respect according to God, devoutness, piety, godliness. Because the word mystery can seem very abstract, very impersonal, very irrelevant for daily life. It's a mystery. We don't know. But this is a practical mystery because godliness is about the very practical, nitty-gritty details of daily life. That the mystery of godliness is the, the mystery behind somebody to, going to care for people in Kensington. It's the, the mystery behind the way to love your wife or your children. The, the mystery behind the way to face suffering or death, the mystery behind the way to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. This is the mystery that, that undergirds godliness, practical living, how we ought to behave in the, the house of God, the church of the living God that's the, the pillar and buttress of truth. This is the mystery of godliness. But before we move on, I want to just camp out on a few points of application as we think about this mystery of godliness. Because I think our society tends to fall into two extremes when it comes to knowledge and mystery. That, that the, the secular world sometimes falls into this extreme rationalism, this extreme sense that we can understand everything. We can piece everything together, that science can answer the deepest questions of the universe. There's optimism that if we think hard enough, if we reflect deep enough, that we can figure out the answer. And if the answer is there, we can understand it. We can comprehend it. We can categorize it. We can put it in a book. We can publish it. And this is really the optimism that we saw so often in the early 20th century um, and sometimes it's called modernism, this, this sense of we can, we can end all wars, we can bring peace and justice into the world because of human advancement. But then, of course, that was all crushed to pieces and dust and all the 
pain and violence and wars of the 20th century, people realize, wait a second, all of our human knowledge and science can't solve the deepest problems of human existence. And so that caused then people to move from this extreme rationalism to an extreme irrationalism that, that says in a way that everything is a mystery, that, that you can't know truth. If there is a God, you couldn't know him. You couldn't say anything about him. You're trapped in your subjective experience. You can't talk about the truth, only my truth or your truth or a truth, that, that you can't access any sort of true objective knowledge, just whatever you feel, that's where you are. And that's what we see so often in our world today, this extreme irrationalism that puts everything in mystery and is skeptical about anyone who can say, I understand, or I figured this out, or this is true. As we reflect on those extremes, the, the Bible guards against both of those extremes in the mystery of godliness. Because on the one hand, the Bible guards us against this irrationalism that, that says we can't understand anything because according to the Bible, the God of the universe has revealed mysteries to us. That the mystery is the mystery of godliness, that it becomes this practical mystery that God reveals himself in nature. It says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And as part of the, the role of individuals, as we look at the, the world around us, to, to, we can understand it, we can explain it, we can draw out messages, we can categorize nature. I mean, this is part of the role of a scientist as a specialist of, of delving deep into God's general revelation. And they can trust that as they delve into God's revelation in nature, it's going to be coherent, it's going to be consistent, they're going to be able to to understand there's going to be a coherent message that comes out from the order of the universe because God has put the order there. We can use our minds to understand creation. It's the same thing with scripture, that the nature is God's general revelation. Scripture is this special revelation, the word of God to us, that he's given to us in words that have meanings and propositions so we can study. And if scientists are the ones who study general revelation, then theologians are the specialists who study special revelation, that they delve into it, they can categorize it, they can understand it, they can try to wrestle through how it fits together. And they can use their, their minds to then articulate that truth, trusting that it reflects reality because of who God is, because God has revealed truth in the Word. That this guards against this extreme of irrationality, as I said, but then the Bible, at the same time, while, while we don't fall into irrationality because we have truth, it also guards against this extreme rationalism that says that we can figure everything out, we can understand everything. And I haven't done a word count of the Bible, but even if you, I mean, it wouldn't be that hard, you could probably Google it um, to see in the original language. But if you were to, to, to have the kind of mind that you could memorize every word of the Bible in the original language. You could just recite it by heart from Genesis to Revelation. And you were able to piece together all of the doctrines and see all of the connections that you somehow mastered the Bible. Then you would know a certain percentage of the infinite, which on the scale of the infinite doesn't show up on the scale. 
because the, the infinite finite can never contain, sorry, the infinite is so much beyond the finite. The finite can never contain the infinite. And, and we know that God is, he is infinite. He is outside of time. And so no matter how much we learn of God's revelation, we've never learned everything that there is to know, that there is always mystery with God. There's always something else to, to discover. There's always something else to uncover. And, and even as, as finite creatures, we can't comprehend the fullness of God because he is infinite, we are finite. He is eternal, we're bound to time, to one passage of a moment, to another. He is the creator, we are the creature. That there is what philosophers would call this ontological gulf between us and God, that, that we can't approach God in and of ourselves. So there's always mystery. And this is why it's so important for us to, to know what we can understand and to know where mystery is and to be able to rest in the mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, that there are secret things that God has not revealed that are mysteries. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are mysteries, there will always be mystery, but some of the mysteries have been made known so that we can do them, the mystery of godliness. But so often what we want to do is we want to find something that God has never said, that he's never revealed, and we want to try to pry open a divine mystery. And we get ourselves into trouble when we do that. You can think of the, the book of Job in the Old Testament. Job is this righteous man who suffers, he loses everything, and he's wondering, why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? And his friends show up and they say, we have the answer to the mystery. Now, you think it's a mystery, but we have thought about it. We've used our minds to piece together and we understand that God is holy and righteous and just and he punishes sin and you are suffering. Ergo, you must be Suffering because you've done something wrong. You need to repent. What have you done, Job? This is why you are suffering. That they were trying to pry open the mystery of godliness, and they couldn't do it. They got themselves into trouble. They were condemned. Uh, they were held guilty before God because of their trying to pry open the mystery. And even Job wonders, why is this happening? When God finally shows up in chapter 38 of Job in the whirlwind, you would expect him to say, Job, let me explain the great mystery of suffering in the world. Let me just explain to you the great mystery of pain and why in my sovereignty I allow evil while being all good and all powerful. Or Job, let me tell you about Satan coming before me and accusing you and me testing you. But he didn't tell Job any of those things. But for, for two chapters, basically, it was boiled down in Job 38 where he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Are you God? Do you understand? Can you fathom the mystery of God? And then Job's response in chapter 40, verse 3 is, Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no 
further. So Job then is, he's, he's stopped. He's saying, I can't say anything more. I can't offer any more theological explanation. All of the dialogues in this book are over because there's, I can't fathom the mystery of this pain, of the suffering that I've endured, but yet I know that God is good. And maybe even some of you have experienced suffering recently or at some point in your life, and you, and you want to know why. You want to understand the mystery. And this is where it's, it's just wonderful what we have in Scripture, that we, can, we know enough of God and his revelation to say he is loving, he is good. He has purposes. He's working all things together for good, that he has a purpose in your life and in my life. But on the other hand, we know that we can't fathom all of God's purposes. Where were we when he laid the foundation of the world? And if my one-year-old daughter can't understand why she gets shots when she goes to the doctor, but yet she can trust in some level that we're doing what is good for her, how can we with our finite minds, understand the infinite mind of God? How can we comprehend? If the explanation was there, would we be able to understand it? Would it be in a language that we could understand? Or would it be what you see with the mathematicians when they have an equation that covers an entire blackboard? And God would say, that's why I allowed this to happen. And we couldn't understand, but we know because he is good, that he is loving, that he is with us, that he reveals to us what we need to know. We can say, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So that's the first thing today, that we confess the mystery of godliness. But then we can add to this because you say, well, is it all mystery? Do we just stop there and wonder what the mystery is? But the mystery behind true godliness is a mystery that has been made known. That we are called to confess the mystery of, the, of godliness who is Christ Jesus, our Lord? That it turns out that the mystery is not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not just a message that the, the mystery is a person. And then Paul responds to the mystery in the only way that you can respond, truly, which is by this hymn, this doxology that he just bursts into and there's debate among scholars whether this was a, a hymn that was used before Paul in the church. Maybe this was familiar to the churches of the time. Maybe it's something that they sung or recited together as a kind of creed. Or maybe Paul himself was composing this. But sometimes that the only response to truth is to confess it, to put in this beautiful poetic form. And these five stanzas, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That is the mystery of godliness. So let's unpack that briefly, looking at those six stanzas. So first, he was manifested in the flesh. And this is the, the mystery of what theologians call the, the doctrine of Christ's two natures, the two natures of Christ. Some early manuscripts say that, put it like this, that God was manifested in the flesh. That, that who is the he, that it was God who was manifested, that God didn't just create a human being 2,000 years ago named Jesus, but that God himself 
was manifested, that God himself took on himself true human nature. He didn't give up what it is to be God. He didn't give up his, his glory. And when he took on a true human nature, it didn't become this third thing that was kind of half God, half man. But what he took on himself was true humanity, true God, true man, and one person. But then what has happened in church history is that's the mystery. It's revealed. It's there in Scripture. But instead of confessing the mystery, some have tried to rationalize the mystery. And they said, well, that, that doesn't make sense. He can't be both. And so there were some in church history that said, well, maybe he wasn't really God. He was just a God or he was just divine in some way or had a, some sort of divine spark. But then we know that's, that's not true. Clearly from Scripture, he is God, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We can't try to rationalize the mystery. Where others in church history have said, well, maybe he was truly God, but he wasn't really human, because would he take on himself the, the weakness of human flesh? That doesn't make sense. How could he be two things at one time, truly God, truly man? That doesn't make any sense. So they said he only appeared to be human. It was just an illusion that he didn't really suffer, he didn't really die that they tried to rationalize the mystery, tried to explain the mystery. And that's one of the, the great aspects of theology that we need to remember, that good theology, when theology when it's done rightly, is not designed to somehow pry into mysteries or try to explain the unexplainable. But what, what good theology does is it, it takes the mystery that has been revealed in Scripture defines it clearly actually to guard the mystery so that we don't say too much. Because the witness of Scripture is that he is, he is God. He is man. He is one person. We don't have two Jesuses, but one. That is the witness of Scripture. When we profess that clearly, we guard against the ability to try to violate the mystery by saying something that is untrue to Scripture. That great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. But look at the, the second stanza. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This is another great doctrine that, of the church called the two estates of Christ, his humiliation and exaltation. That in his humiliation, in his taking on human flesh, he came under the law. He came under the shame and reproach of sinful people. He was condemned as a sufferer, as a sinner. He was Nailed to the cross, he, he died this shameful, ignominious death on the cross that, that he, when people looked at him, they said, look, he's a sinner, he's done something wrong. And that was this ultimate humiliation that he endured for you and for me. But then in his exaltation, he comes out the other side that in his resurrection, there was this great testimony of the Spirit saying, no, he, he is innocent he was the innocent sufferer, saying that his sacrifice for the sins of his people was truly accepted once and for all, and that the Spirit, in raising him up, vindicated him, declared him just, declared him righteous. And the, the great mystery of godliness is that, that we share in his humiliation and his exaltation, that when we repent and trust in Christ, that we are crucified with Christ that we take up our cross daily to follow Christ, that we share in his, his sufferings. 
But at the same time, we share in his exaltation that, that we deserve the just verdict guilty on the day of judgment, but that when we repent and trust in Christ, that, that Christ's vindication by the Spirit becomes our vindication by the Spirit, that we are declared just. We are vindicated because he was vindicated in our place as the one who is truly innocent. This is the mystery. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. But then here's the, the third stanza. He was seen by angels. And this is the, the great mystery of God's plan of redemption through all of time, that we are sinful creatures. We are less than nothing in and of ourselves because we deserve the, the judgment of God. And then you consider the angels, the, these glorious beings dwelling in the holy presence of God, that if an angel showed up here in the room, we would cower under our chairs and we would be tempted to fall down and to, to worship one of these glorious creatures dwelling in the holy presence of God. But then do you know what amazes angels? The incarnation of Christ, the, the mystery of godliness, that God would take on himself true humanity, that he didn't take on the form of an angel, that he took on himself the form of a man. And as even the heavenly hosts witness this unfolding plan of redemption, that they are amazed for his love for sinners, amazed that God would, of his sovereign eternal will, unite himself to true humanity, not just for a moment, but for the rest of time, for the rest of history, for, the, for eternity to unite himself as the God-man for the sake of his people that he would redeem from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that, that angels marvel. That's why at each step of Christ's ministry that the angels proclaimed his birth, the glory to God in the highest, that the main angels ministered to him after his temptation in the desert. They, the angels were the first witnesses of the resurrection, that, that his resurrection was, wasn't witnessed by human eyes, but was witnessed by angels, which is why when the women first showed up at the tomb, the angels were there. They said, he is risen that they, they were the first ones to testify to the truth of the resurrection, that it was seen by angels, that he was vindicated in the spirit, that he was manifested in the flesh. And if this is the, the most amazing story, the most amazing reality to angels, then how about us? Are we more interested in our cell phone? Are we more interested in what's going on in the news? Or are we captivated by this great mystery of godliness? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. But then fourth, he was proclaimed among the nations. And this is the great mystery of evangelism. This is the great mystery of world missions. This is the great mystery of the gospel going out to the nations. That at first, it, when God began to reveal himself to humanity, it seemed like his purposes were for Israel, for the, the nation of Israel only. But then there's this great mystery that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's now been thrown wide open to the Gentiles. That we here in this room, I mean, there are probably some here that have Jewish ancestry, but probably for most of us that we are 
Gentiles who have received the promises, that we are testimonies to this mystery. That is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, what is the mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise through the gospel. That that through the gospel going out to the nations, there will be hope, there will be life. This is why missions matter. This is why church planting matters. It all matters because great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Then fifth, here's the fifth stanza. He was believed on in the world. And this is the the mystery of regeneration, the mystery of people being brought from death to life. Because according to the Bible, we are dead in our sins and trespasses by nature. That if the gospel had gone out to the nations apart from God working in human hearts, it would have been the, the voice going out over the valley of dry bones. It would just, there would be no life. It would be, how, how can dead people understand? How can dead people come to life? But that God, in his mercy, gives people new hearts and he gives them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe the gospel. That when the gospel goes out to the nations, through the witness of the church, through evangelism, through church planting, through world missions, that that amazingly people actually hear it and repent and believe and find life. That is the amazing thing. The amazing thing is not that more people don't believe. The great mystery of godliness is that anyone believes because we are so dead by nature, but God is so gracious in his love for us that, that great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And, and that, that therefore we can see even what the picture in Revelation, Revelation 7, verse 9. After that, this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and, and nation and language standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels, there's the angels witnessing. The angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Then the sixth and and final stanza, this is where we'll, we'll leave our time today, that he was taken up into glory. And this is the mystery of his ascension. This is the, the mystery of his, his current ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and glory on high. This is the, the mystery of Christ coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is the mystery of the hope that we have through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the, the mystery that, that is actually on offer to us, that we can share in the glory of God, that he was taken up into glory. But when we repent and trust in Jesus, that we have the, the promise of, of sharing ultimately in his glory, the promise of, 
of glory, of beholding the glory of God with unveiled faces, of being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that, that the glory of Christ becomes the glory that we experience in that glory then motivates us to love and to serve. And, and it's the hope of glory that motivates us here. This is the great key. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the mystery to love your friends, to love your family, to love your neighbor, to endure suffering, to endure pain, to endure uncertainty. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the mystery. We thank you that the mystery wasn't left concealed out of view, but that of all the mysteries that we know there is still mystery, there will always be mystery because you are the infinite, eternal God outside of time itself, but yet present with us. Lord, there's mystery. But we thank you that this mystery in particular has been made known. And Lord, we can't fully wrap our minds around it. We can't explain why of all the plans that you would have that this would be it. But Lord, we, we see it revealed. We see the hope that it offers. And so Lord, we pray that we could boldly profess, confess the mystery, that we would hold up the mystery, that we as the church would be the pillar be a pillar and a buttress of truth, lifting up this mystery to the world. And we pray that as this message goes out, that, that we would see men, women, and children brought to faith, that we would see Christ believed on in the world. And Lord, we recognize that in this creed, it's put in the past tense. This is a completed aspect, Lord, but but that from our perspective, that it, it's that work is still even future. And so, Father, we pray that we could be faithful in confessing the mystery of godliness, that we would see it as great, and that you would use this mystery of godliness to change the way we suffer, to change the way we love, to change the way we serve, to change the way we risk, to change the way we engage with people around us, that we would see it as this, this practical mystery that we need for daily life. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.